is up, partner up. I'm wearing my favorite shirt again. This is, uh, Michelle's seen this one, uh, one too many times. Nobody cares, uh, work harder. And uh, I'm excited to be back with you this week. Um, I, I've talked a lot about how there's no like definitive work on, um, on partnerships. Um, but there are a few seminal works that have started to um, kind of come across my radar. So we have one of the authors of one of the key books. There's a very small uh, number, uh, Mr. Mark uh, Sochan here. Um, but before we hop into the guest, Michelle, we, we have some news, which is some crazy news by the time this airs. And it's a little, little kind of sad that um, as of recording this pod, it's like my last official week uh, at Drift. So um, still co-hosting together, but not uh, working in the trenches um, like we have for the past four years. Yeah, super bittersweet. You have been my partner in crime for the last three and a half years. So it'll be tough to see you go, but I'm excited for your next venture, which we will probably talk about a little bit later. But I think this is a massive opportunity for you and uh, excited to continue to learn with you through this podcast and this ecosystem. So it's been great. I'm excited for you. 1,000%. I'm excited to get back into the entrepreneur roots. I've hinted towards uh, that I think partner leaders can be the next wave of um, entrepreneurs. And that's my uh, early background. So um, I won't drop the news on this podcast, but you will see me as a co-founder of a new venture. And um, there will be a big partner um, focus um, in terms of that next uh, next role. So excited to hop in and then talk about probably my favorite part of partnering. Just did a, a Cloud Software Association masterclass uh, on this, um, which is uh, strategic partnering. And I have the book right here. And then now we're going to bring in the amazing author. So of uh, the art of strategic partnering, dancing with elephants. Mark, welcome to Partner Up. Well, thank you. Nice to meet you, Jared, and nice to see you, Michelle. Thanks for coming on, Mark. Yes. Um, I say it's my favorite part because maybe I'll, I'll frame, um, I think today, obviously the book title kind of gives away a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Dancing with Elephants, two kind of positions that, you know, you might be in this uh, David and Goliath situation, so to speak, right? Exactly. Um, and I've always been in startups, so I've always kind of lived in that world, right? I haven't been at big companies and partnered with other big companies. So I loved the framing and um, kind of how you put the book together. But the reason why I think strategic partnerships are just such a you know, keystone or cornerstone of a company's go-to-market really starts from your entire ecosystem kind of starts around that massive big alliance there. And then you can kind of have more tech partners that fall through from underneath that, more customer relationships, perhaps channel relationships or service relationships. That's kind of like my viewpoint on why getting the strategic partner right might have outsized effects to getting 50 other smaller partners, right? So before we dive into kind of like the timeline of like how to really dance with these elephants, Mark, maybe give your perspective for um, how you might talk to a CEO because you're a managing director at CEO Quest, right? And you help companies kind of figure out this problem. Um, how, how do you talk to your clients about um, why strategic partnering is perhaps the the cornerstone of um, building an ecosystem strategy? Well, I love talking to CEOs and executive teams about their strategic partnering strategy because uh, I have personally lived through um, a number of startups that have had tremendous success, created a 10x value bump and ultimately a successful M&A acquisition because they had a strategic partnership strategy at the core of what they did. And, um, and I wrote the book, uh, The Art of Strategic Partnering, Dancing with Elephants, because 
um, I, I wanted to share this topic, which I don't think is well known by a lot of CEOs. And basically what's not known is how much impact um, the largest elephants in your industry can make in your business, way more than um, a smaller mid-sized company. So tell me how, like, if a, if a company is coming to you and saying, hey, we, we're trying to figure this thing out, they come across your desk and you're going to share some of those stories. What's the framing that you need to align on with that executive team of like, hey, you're going to work with me. You need to understand that this is at X or Y level of importance. And here's why. How do you level set on gaining that kind of alignment before, um, you know, someone's like, hey, like, we just need a partnership with Salesforce. Like, figure it out, partner people. Like, they come to you because they, they want to elevate, uh, presumably, um, the, um, the level of importance that that partnership might have. How do you go about having that conversation with the executive team? Well, you bring up a great problem. I was talking to uh, David Weir at Bessemer Ventures, and he said, Mark, you know, typical problem we see is most CEOs, they're product people at heart, and they've done a tremendous successful job of building up the first few key critical customers. And then they get to Series C, and the board says, okay, we got to scale. Go get us a bunch of partnerships. But the CEO, who's a product person at heart, they don't know anything about alliances or strategic partnerships. So they hire a VP alliances. Um, and the goals are wildly uh, out of sync and out of alignment. And then, you know, there's a big mess at the end. So the better way to do it is you get your management team together, your key stakeholders, and, and you do a blue, what I call a blue sky exercise. You say, okay, if we could have any partnership we wanted to, which are the blue sky partnerships? Which are the ones that would really move the needle for our company? Which of the ones would give us, you know, 10x value bump in our valuation, would get our investors excited, uh, get the analysts on board, and the customers would see us as a safe choice to buy from. So the first step is just getting the key stakeholders on the same page about really envisioning what are those big partnerships that would really make a big difference. And I think you start that journey, you know, once you kind of have that blue sky exercise in front of you. Uh, maybe it's a part of it or it's a prerequisite to it of identifying like, so you, you said like 10x, you know, value would get people excited, but maybe it's it's a step before or a step after. Why are we doing this from an executive standpoint? So like there's a couple different ways. The way that I typically think about it is from a market like competitive moat or competitive uh, differentiator, right? Like it's a, it's a way to surround ourselves with someone bigger that can prevent either the incumbents from coming down to us or the, you know, upstarts disrupting where we're at. Typically, what do you find is the, the way that you get that alignment on like why strategic partner? Uh, obviously, there's the economic benefit that might seem evident to you or perhaps me or Michelle, as you've seen some of this as well. And Michelle's given a talk on this topic too. Um, how do you level set on the why? Because I feel like that absent that, everyone has different ideas of what the strategic partner might mean. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You got to get everybody on the same page about the why. And here's my take on the why. The first is most startup companies, you got zero brand, you got zero credibility. Um, customers don't know who you are. Um, you've got literally pretty limited resources, especially on the marketing side. So it's not like you can go spend a million bucks on a big advertising campaign. So how do you go get the leverage? Well, one of the best ways to get leverage is you go strategically partner with the biggest elephants in your industry. So 
the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Salesforce, the ServiceNows. Those are the guys who have a big brand, um, have large customer base. And if you could figure out a way to strategically partner with them, you automatically get access to that world. You get that brand enhancement. You get that market um, visibility. You get access to the customer base. So that's the why. Getting access to the customers, getting market visibility and awareness. So once you've decided on who those key partners are, Mark, like, where do you go from there? You just mentioned, right? You're, you're a small startup. You're a small fish in a big pond. How do you get these guys to even pay attention to you? And how do you present like the value proposition that you can be jointly had between the two? Well, great question, Michelle. First thing I'll tell you, don't start at the partner organization. Um, I just did a podcast with um, the Partner Strategy Network that I do with Wesley Coelho. And we just did this uh, podcast about never talk to the partner alliance people. Mm. And, and I don't mean in a bad way. It's not that the partner alliance are bad people, but at the big companies, the partner alliance people are there to control things, to be gatekeepers, to, you know, um, make you jump a bunch of barriers. Um, and ultimately you're just trying to get access to, um, to the, the executives who can actually make a decision. So my suggestion is, if you can go first to the product people, chief product officer, VP product management, director of product management, go to the people who own the product line, who own the big strategy for the company and make a pitch of how your startup has an incredible innovation uh, or fill some key um, hole or missing gap in their strategy that gives them a major competitive advantage. So for most startups, what you're offering the big guys is you're offering an innovation leap start an opportunity to leapfrog the competition. So this is where um, I brought this book up a couple times and I don't know why I keep referencing it. Cause I don't think it's that good. I think your book's a little bit better, Mark is um, the sumo advantage, but I, I really loved how um, he talks about, you have to be an entrepreneur to win these types of relationships. And mm -hmm. what you just said is kind of indicative of that same perhaps truth that I think might exist in that you're trying to go in with these product people, but, if you don't have an idea or some thesis or some hypothesis that you've tested right. and some sort of proof on like, here is the baseline of better together, you're not going to get their time, right? So going into that meeting um, with the product org outside of partnerships, typically are you helping companies identify or do you have a framework for going, hey, here is that, you know, one plus one equals three or, or because I feel like, if it's not the CEO, if it's not the founder, if it's not that entrepreneur and it's just a hired partner gun, they might be going in trying to get the relationship, but not have the secret sauce. What um, I've called the black swan moment, but it's a direct rip off of Chris Voss from Never Split the Difference. Um, how do you help companies or guide people through like, hey, before you go get that meeting with the CPO, you better have something good to talk about, which isn't your small company. Like, what, what's she going to care about? Um, right. How do you go about building that? Uh, or guiding companies through that process of um, identifying why should they care? Well, you hit the nail on the head, which is it's not about you. Nobody cares about your small startup company. You got to do your homework about for the elephant, what's the major problems that they're facing? So you've done your homework and you've figured out, okay, we know that competitively they have a huge gap in this area. Uh, they got a particular, uh, one of their arch enemy big competitors are breathing down their space or they're trying to crack into this new market 
and you're going to come there and present on their terms and their language of how they can do this. So absolutely, it's all about um, brainstorming ahead of time and being very clear about uh, what's the value that you're going to bring to them. And in this exercise of creating the top 10 strategic partner priority list, I evaluate all the partners on three dimensions. Obviously, the value that they could bring to us, uh, scale of 1 to 10. But more importantly, on a scale of 1 to 10, realistically, how much value do we bring to them? Okay, If we're only bringing like a 2 out of 10 value, I'd say go focus somewhere else. And then the third is kind of a realistic assessment of, okay, how difficult is it going to be to execute this partnership? Um, you know, I remember doing a deal with Oracle uh, years ago, and we got the deal done, but that's not their model. Versus there's other companies like Salesforce um, that really have a deep partnering model built in where they're trying to build up that ecosystem. So um, getting really clear about what's that value that we can bring to them that help them achieve their strategic goals. Typically in that um, conversation, I'd love to um, maybe dive through an example. Like I'll share one on my side and see if one comes to, to mind for you. Um, yeah. Like uh, in the Marketo and Drift partnership, which turned into the Adobe and Drift Alliance, there was that black swan moment. The thing that was true that no one recognized is true. That was like a big aha moment. Um, I remember Jill Rowley um, and Bobby Napletonia, who's been on the podcast and is kind of like a friend mentor of mine. And um, some of the team at Marketo and myself, like we literally high-fived at the table, which was really awkward and weird um, because that like never happens in real life. Like it was like something out of a stock photo, I think. <laughs> um, but there was literal high-fives across the table at this uh, conference because we realized that what we did for them was their individual contributors on the CSM side, that we were the number one driver from an integration standpoint of net dollar retention because we added more contacts to the database, which allowed for, so it wasn't that we were just aligning to top level strategic objectives, it's that we could go all the way down to the individual contributors that would be responsible for this and their core metric, right? The persona of like, okay, here's the 150 people that really need to activate this, they're already aligned. And that's the stage where I felt like the dynamic changed. And it went from hardcore negotiation about certain points to let's get this done. Um, do you have an example or a story? Cause I feel like, um, that's like a, that's like the thing that needs, we need to get more stories out there for the executives to like, see these things. Um, do you have a story or an example that might uh, demonstrate, hey, okay, here's how we got to that aha moment. Yeah. I think of a couple of stories. I mean, first off, one of the, um, tips and tricks that I give to CEOs is the right number of strategic partnerships is any number except for one. And that, that often surprises people. And, and the reason I say it's any number than one is because you want a portfolio approach. It's such a power dynamic imbalance when you're the startup and you're dealing with this mega multi-billion dollar company that one of the ways these guys often respond more to the competitive pressure. Um, and so the fact that you can say, um, for example, I was doing a deal with SAP years ago and I had a trouble getting access to SAP. But when I got access to some of their competitors at the time as PeopleSoft and Bond, suddenly I got the meeting with SAP. Suddenly I was a lot more relevant because they saw that I was doing stuff with their direct competitors. Um, so so that's um, that competitive leverage I think is really important. That creates helps you create more leverage and carry a bigger stick than you would if you were just um, on your own. It gives you more credibility. And as far as the aha moment, um, 
I I don't know that I've had a, um, a high five um, slapping meeting. I wish I did, but I tell you, I sense in the meeting, you sense when you're going from uh, they're being skeptical. Um, I call it trying to pass a sniff test. You know, you're, you're that first meeting, 30 minutes, and I'm always trying to just hit to the high value stuff. And as soon as they start asking questions, that's where I know, okay, that's my high five moment. It's like the, the tables have turned and now it's a conversation that we're having versus me just pitching and, um, you know, waving my arms. Um, and I also ask straight up, I say, did this resonate for you? You know, is this hitting on any of the topics of interest to you? Because I see a lot of mistakes where CEOs or companies will talk and talk and talk and talk and they don't ask questions. They don't validate and say, um, you know, is this important to you guys? Is any of this resonating for you? And so if nothing else, if you can leave the meeting and even if you got shot down, if you can learn a few things about what they didn't like, then you can tune it up and, and get better next time you talk to the next partner. Right. In the, in, in, in that kind of model of, um, determining the aha moment, um, and being at the table, so to speak, we're kind of talking about the, you know, the business case that's going to get everyone aligned to, um, you know, term sheet, so to speak. And then obviously legal is contracting is almost like it should be done from a business standpoint. Cause you have the executive buy-in you, um, you mentioned in the book, kind of like a brief hierarchy of like low value to high value. Um, so like at the bottom rung, is low value would be like, um, I don't know, maybe like co-marketing, right? So like lots of companies co-market with brands that are you know similar to them, but aren't competitive just because it's easy. There's a bit of an ego trap, right? Like you both bring leads to the table and so what? No harm, no foul. But at the highest yeah, you, end, all, you, you, you do a co-branding thing and you hope the other guy does all the work and brings you leads and no one brings leads for anybody. Right. That's yeah. you know, usually the reality. If, yeah, we, we've done a, we've done a lot and I've seen that be successful just from a, um, like we're in a category that's wider than the category we're in. So let's say account-based marketing. So we're like conversational chat. We have an account-based play, but we're not the ABM thing. We can go talk with people in, you know, account-based marketing, um, where it's not competitive, it's complimentary. And, you know, we have integrations with those people. So that's simple, but it's not a strategic partnership. It's kind of like low value, easy, no big deal. But at the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned OEM partnerships, right? Like the degree to yeah. which, um, it might be powered by or gray label, perhaps white label. Um, we don't need to debate that. To me, if you're in this hyper growth or scaling phase, the friction that you typically run into is like, let's say you could negotiate the perfect deal and do this OEM partnership. There's going to be skepticism from that VP of sales or that CRO or that CMO and be like, how are you not going to eat the sales team's lunch on this? How are we not going to compete with each other? So if OEM is kind of like the highest rung of that value chain, how do you go about figuring out like before you come in here, like, Hey, are we willing to you know, get, see that space or, you know, work around that? What are some of the tips or advice that you have for, um, you know, if OEM or distribution, right? I mean, that's, that's one form of distribution kind of at the highest order, um, isn't viewed combatively by the rest of the management team. Yeah, it, it's a great point, and it's usually one of the things that does come up is a is a pushback about you know isn't this going to cannibalize our sales? And look, at the end of the day, I've always believed that channel conflict's a good thing. I mean, it actually means you're making a mark, uh, you're making a dent in the market. I mean, most startups have the problem that just nobody knows about them. So, I mean, you know, having hundred percent of nothing is still nothing. Um, so, with um, 
with, you know, an OEM strategic partnership, I always try and uh, create the deals so that there's some sort of restrictions, there's some sort of boundaries that protect the direct sales space from what the OEM is going to do. So maybe it has to be bundled uh, together with their product. Um, perhaps it's uh, some sort of restricted version product, still a lot of value, but it's restricted in some way so that what the OEM is doing uh, in seeding the market and creating lots of opportunities is creating a lot of upsell opportunity for the direct salespeople. So uh, every deal is different, but I'm always looking for that boundary, um, the definition of the water's edge, if you will, kind of what can the OEM do? Where can our direct sales team step in and do something that's of higher value? Totally. Cause that, that initial seed use case, so to speak, could be something where the sales team might be like, Hey, I'm passing up a hundred thousand dollar, you know, opportunity. But the reality is, is do you want to try to sell a hundred thousand dollar opportunity into an account that's cold or to an account that's utilized part of the solution in terms of their day to day, you have the brand recognition, um, and then you get to go pitch the full value. So I, I think it's about zooming out and, um, I have to go back to what you said, because I don't think I've ever heard someone say this quote, um, <laughs> Is the channel conflict is a good thing? Yeah, please. Um, I want to double like, click into that. Please, I would love to hear more about that. <laughs> um, like, normally, partner leaders spend a lot of their time debating this point, right? And like trying to eliminate channel conflict. There's so many cycles spent on that, and perhaps you have a different. I mean. By, your, by what you just said, you have a different perspective. It's like um, maybe there is a way to kind of empower partner leaders to, to lean into that statement to be like, look, this is a good thing. These are champagne problems. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it, it is a topic. In my experience, it gets debated um, too much time around the management team table. Uh, and, you know, guys, it's like, let's let's go make something happen first. What a lovely problem to have is that we're here in six months or a year, and we're now having to uh, figure out deal registration programs because we're too successful in the marketplace. So I just often think uh, it just comes from a lot of fear uh, and not in reality. Um, the reality of, you know, channel conflict happening uh, to me, doesn't happen that often in reality. Um, so, of course, you know, we're, we're being smart about it. Um, we're thinking about, okay, how are we segmenting the market, our OEM, what boundaries are going to put around them, what restrictions. So there's still a tremendous amount of value, but that OEM partner is serving us in the sense that they're opening up the market, they're seeding the market. And, you know, our job is to be pedaling faster than the, the big elephants and coming up with the next innovation. So our direct sales team always has something of higher value to, to sell and to offer. And to your point, Jared, it's all about, would you rather have a warm account where uh, we're already a trusted uh, entity or you, you're going to want to be starting cold? I mean, and I think everybody knows it's way better to have already um, a warm relationship, a trusted relationship. It's much more effective uh, to sell from that perspective than from straight out in the cold. Right. So, so moving kind of from that, I think you call it the magic moment. Uh, like I call it the black swan, the aha moment um, in the book into um, let's assume that you have decent buy-in on the management side, you know, the partners, you know, their, their ears are tuned up and you kind of have the business case. Um, you're kind of going into the, like the contracting component and there's very little out there for strategic partnership templates. Um, I, I, the reason why content wise I've over indexed on the business case is that I often feel like 90% of the job to be done is there, 
But even if you do get it done there, I feel like the management team wants to know, you know, what may, what what could this thing look like in terms of key contract terms to kind of think about. You lay out some kind of like frameworks and some parameters in the book, but what might be some key takeaways from that kind of contracting component that might help the management team understand like, hey, here's the bounds of what we're going to be talking about when we approach this partner that makes them at ease to be like, okay, we're not going to give away the farm in 80% of our revenue. Um, maybe uh, kind of give some of the context for how you think about contracting and setting the stage before you, you know, try to put these terms together. Well, one of the first things I try and do is I try to have, um, you know, a, a business value discussion, kind of a market opportunity discussion with the other side. So share with me, what do you see as, you know, the best case, like, you know, the, the most amount of success in terms of sales dollars, number of net new customers, number of licenses sold. Um, and what do you think is the minimum or worst case? And so now you've got this, this range of value, right? You kind of set your low water mark and you've got the wildly successful mark. And then you, you got your goalposts. So you, you know, okay, hopefully it's going to fall somewhere in the middle there. So that's the first thing is I think it's really important just to establish some goalposts of what's the range from worst case, minimum we're going to do to, of course, the up, uh, total blue sky, things are really rocking out of the park. And I think that's really important because then you can start to dial in a little bit more about where where the sweet spot is. Um, the second thing is about exclusive. If there's one hot button topic I have is never ever do exclusive deals. Um, is a lot of pressure, especially when you're a small startup and you're dealing with the big elephant, uh, you're going to get asked, but it's really easy to position away from that. And you just say, look, we're a small independent software company. We're lean and mean, we're nimble. And to be a viable independent company, we have to be able to win more customers. It's a good thing for you. Um, because you don't want to have us dependent on just you. Um, and ultimately, uh, an exclusive is by the company. That's, that's really what it is. Let me, let me hop in real quick on that point. Um, Michelle, I know you want to ask a question. When you say exclusivity, what if you can get mutual exclusivity? What if you can prevent that partner from building, buying, or partnering with anyone else? And they're like the big sumo of the space, the big elephant. Is there, um, would you go, hmm, maybe at that point, exclusivity for a year, like the first year or something like that would be worthwhile if, if you can get them to? Because I've done that before. And really in the first year, I couldn't go build another alliance anyways, but right. I got to stop right. them from doing it, which was way right. more valuable. In that case, would you say that's an exception? I would. Um, I wouldn't go a year, but I have done deals where I've compromised and said, okay, let's do something for three, four, five months, you know, maybe six months with the idea that there's no way that these guys could launch something else in that time frame. Uh, I've also done it where I've, it's been restricted. So instead of saying nothing in six months, it's like, how about just these two or three hot button competitive partners where it would create, you know, massive turmoil for your management team. If there was an announcement with your dreaded evil competitor, you know, a month after we did our announcements. So those kinds of things I think are places where you can, you can compromise. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I, I think it's, you're, you're trying to be pretty stingy on how much you give on that kind of exclusivity. It's usually a bad thing, not a good thing. Right. So you can call out specific companies that you would not want them to partner with as part of the agreement. So I wanted yeah. to ask, so Mark, if you get to a place where the joint value proposition makes sense for both sides within those bands, like you were mentioning, what about, you know, 
And I think you talk about this in your book as well, like the ability to get somebody active and over that honeymoon phase and like, how do you keep the partnership going? But within the initial agreement, what if you can't perform, right? What's the exit strategy if this isn't the right partnership um, once you get into the, the weeds of actually diving in together? Yeah. Well, first thing, Michelle, I really want to call out, and I, and I did it right in my in opening uh, pages of my book. Uh, I tell the story, um, you know, and this is a true story that happened to me when I was at uh, Crystal Services, uh, the makers of Crystal Reports, a report writing software. And we just inked this big deal with uh, uh, Borland D-Base, and we were so excited. And then, you know, we bet the company on this whole thing, and then they announced that they had bought uh, ReportSmith, our evil number one competitor. Mm-hmm. And we were stunned. We were like, okay, how is this possible? Um, and so, you know, what, what you realize is you can't put all your eggs in one basket. You have to take a portfolio approach. And to some degree, you got to assume that it's not going to go perfectly. There's going to be some hiccups. Now, that's an extreme hiccup. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the worst case yeah. hiccup. Um, but every deal I've done, and I've done over 200 OEM deals, it never goes as planned. There's delays, there's market disruptions, competitive things that happen, uh, execution problems, delays in their product cycle. I guarantee you one thing, there will be some hiccups to the plant. And so you ink the deal right away. I think it's about trying to be agile and trying to figure out how you're going to adjust. I call it tap dancing. How are you going to adjust to the deal? And so you may have signed up some pretty aggressive gives in terms of development cycles, uh, but there's going to be things that happen pretty quickly where there's opportunities to kind of renegotiate or, you know, do some gives and gets to find a, a place where things are working or adjusting to the new realities. So to that point, right, the, the business is always going to act in their best interest, right? Whatever that means. Right. So how do you, and maybe this is diving into like once you're already signed and, and the partnership's kind of moving along, what strategy do you have around continuing to keep aligned with that business and make sure that that original value we, we decided on initially is still the same value and how to keep ourselves yeah. on that path. That's a great question. And, and one of the techniques is um, insist on having, um, you know, probably a monthly check-in, I think an executive check-in, especially in the early days, first six months or so forth, have that executive check-in, you know, identify the, the senior executives on both sides, because there's going to be a lot of stuff that's in the weeds and, you know, there's going to be problems. And then once a month, okay, check in. Here's the value that both sides agreed to. Is this still true on right. both sides? Um, you know, is there anything that's changed on your side or our side that, you know, needs to be acknowledged or called out or adjusted? So I uh, have that monthly uh, at an absolute minimum quarterly check in, yep. you know, quarterly, you know, quarter can be a long time, especially in the early formative stages of the partnership to really validate, uh, honestly, like, how are we doing? You know, were you happy? Were you not happy? Um, for the startup, it often gets frustrating. They're dealing with all the bureaucracy of a big company. I mean, drive you crazy. Um, you know, three people from the startup side, and it's usually pretty senior management people, executives, and they're dealing with a team of 30 on the other right. side, and it gets bogged down in the bureaucracy. Right, because the startup is so used to moving quickly where they're finding on the other side there's a lot of more red tape and a lot more. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. In the um, On the back, there's a quote, Mark, and it's... um. It's from Jeffrey Moore, 
which Crossing the Chasm has probably been the book I've evangelized more to friends and colleagues and family, even like my wife, more than anyone. Like it's mandatory reading for anyone that really wants to figure out markets. It's amazing how, um, you know, Jeff's narrative in the 90s when he wrote it um, is still true today. He left you a quote, right? He said that, that, like, you know, you got to read this. It's packed with uh, practical examples, you know, and tactics. Uh, and I feel like strategic partnerships can kind of be viewed within the lens of crossing the chasm. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the early adopter phase, I feel like you probably should not be trying to nail that strategic partner. Like you need to have the social proof and the like, let's figure out the franchise and what's working, what's not. But then crossing the chasm feel like feels like that point where it's like we want to nail this next vertical or this next horizontal, this next persona. Um, do you feel like the strategic partnering narrative might fit hand in glove with crossing the chasm is like, I almost view strategic partnering as the bridge, the cheat code to cross the chasm where a lot of companies fail. Um, is that useful framing helpful for companies to think about? Or maybe I'm like way off base and that I'm just trying to tie together something I'm geeking out on with you and one of my favorite books. (laughs) Well, I, I I challenge you on that. It might be a little bit different than you think, and but it's a great question. Um, you know, when I was sitting down for breakfast uh, with Jeffrey Moore to um, uh, talk to him about the book and, and get his endorsement for the book, and and I was very fortunate. I had the opportunity to work with Jeffrey Moore when I was with Crystal. He would come up to Vancouver, Canada, and meet with the management team on a quarterly basis, and he would go through our strategy. And he was an incredibly inspirational guy to work with, and he made us think outside the box. And when I was sitting down with him um, at breakfast and talking about the book, he said, Mark, is there a certain stage of company uh, where strategic partnerships are kind of the right place to engage? You know, is it uh, seed? Is it series A? Is it series B? And um, what I answered was, um, I don't think there is any point where it's too soon. Um, And by that, what I mean is, it's a competitive thing. When you're talking about strategic partnerships with the big guys, they're only going to pick one strategic partner. Typically they're going to pick their, their favorite, if you will, they think is the most innovative or the best, smartest visionary that's going to move into the, um, to, to the goal line. And I've seen that happen is, uh, obviously as late stages, series C or whenever, but usually it happens a lot earlier. It usually happens, um, you know, once there's a demo, once there's some early customers that validated it. And so what I often share with CEOs is, um, how would you feel if tomorrow morning you're opening up your inbox and you read that elephant partner, say Salesforce just announces a strategic partnership with your number one, uh, arch nemesis competitor. How does that make you feel? If that feels like a, um, a gut punch to the stomach, then that should tell you something. It should tell you something that you've got to be to the table earlier. And, you know, if you're not at the table, like how is the the big strategic company supposed to know you even exist? Um, how are you supposed to learn about what they see as valuable and important? So I believe the earlier that you can get to that proverbial table, um, the better, because at a minimum, uh, you can get your name known to them and I've never left a meeting with, you know, senior product managers where I didn't learn a whole bunch about the market and about their customers and how they think about the market that gave me ideas about how to refine the pitch and make it better. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll accept your, um, 
argument with me. I was kind of sitting here thinking like, hmm, I'm not sure that this is uh, necessarily the right um, <laughs> the right perspective because um, <laughs> I think you really do need to nail your core customer, the early adopter, and then cross the chasm. But I think that's a great question that you asked around, you know, to ask your CEO, to ask yourself, what if your number one um, partner, right, um, a potential partner, partner with your competition. Like what a simple framework, what an easy question to ask. And then it's like, yeah. hmm, maybe we, we don't want to risk that. Maybe it really yeah. is that important early on. Yeah. Um, the challenge is still the same. You have to make sure that you have the value there. So if you don't have the value there, then it's like, look, who cares if your number one competition partners with your number one, you know, strategic, because you probably have an existential crisis, right? Not necessarily you're be out of business crisis, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I mean, and, and every startup has um, most, I would think, by virtue of having raised money, gotten investors on board, they have a compelling idea. Um, they might need to refine it. They might need to take it to the next level. But everyone should, every CEO should have a vision, a vision that they can cast that should be exciting and compelling. And if it's not, what better place to, to learn from uh, these large ISVs that spend millions of dollars on analysts and on research and uh, customer research, they have a lot of insights. And so they can give you some really valuable feedback on your pitch, what's resonating and what's not. You get to learn from the market. And I think that perspective is um, insanely valuable. It's um, what's interesting is that um, as you mature, so if you're in the early startup organizations, right, th there is typically no corporate strategy role. Um, but as you get bigger and bigger, that corporate strategy role typically has, I mean, I normally see um, like the purview of partnerships, you know, like alliances, partner channel, et cetera, because that organization, that that line of business or, you know, overlay to the other lines typically has the best point of view of the market. Um, so early on, you know, you can get caught in the trap of just being stuck in the customer. And that sounds great. Like you want to put the customer at the center of everything you do. You have to. But if you're doing that at the expense of like what's actually happening in the market one layer beyond, you can actually get in this trap where you're just trying to like solve for problems and firefight where the market is going a completely different direction. Um, it's valuable, if nothing else, for those types of insights. Like how is the big, how are the big people thinking about this? Because they have corporate strategy. They have a perspective on the market um, that you probably want to understand um, right. prior to anything. He's building that relationship. We should have a, um, should have a chief market officer, right, Jared? Let's focus that's, on that's the market. Said. We've said it before. <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, you know what? I threw this out, and actually, a couple of people have responded to me on LinkedIn about this. Mark, I'd love your take. Is um, I think in the future of ecosystem, um, you know, to have people on like Jay McBain from Forrester, um, you know, some some really smart folks like Avinish Sahai, board of directors at HubSpot, Google ServiceNow, Salesforce, and I've I've thought like, look, if ecosystem and partnering really is um, perhaps one of the biggest levers in this, this big bang calls the, the decade of the ecosystem that how do we align everything together from the perspective of the market? And, um, I said, you know, the, the new CMO should actually be chief market officer where sales marketing and partnerships rolls into her. Um, because you need those things to work in concert, not from the perspective of how you work with the customers and how you reach customers, but what is the market point of view? And then how do we kind of work? together within that. Um, what do you, what's your take on that? Do you feel like the misalignment that perhaps might exist inherently in marketing, sales, partnerships 
um, might sit better under one that kind of has that purview of market first, a second? Well, what you got me thinking about as you were speaking was product-led growth companies. Um, When I was CEO of Partnerpedia, um, we didn't have a big marketing budget, uh, but we had this concept of creating uh, enterprise app stores. So kind of taking the Steve Jobs idea of app stores for consumers and how can we apply that to the enterprise? And, you know, we were thinking of how do we get this new category known in the market? And we realized, well, let's just make it so anyone can come to the uh, website and quickly spin up their own private branded enterprise app store. And uh, we'd go through the log list to see, you know, who had requested a demo. And one day I look and it's Coca-Cola. Wow. Okay. That's a big company with a big brand. And, you know, we followed up with the, the person who had requested the, uh, the demo and it was an incredible conversation. Um, they had really thought through, um, how they wanted to use the product. They had done their market research. Um, and ultimately they were giving us new ideas about, uh, uses and features for the enterprise app store that they would find extremely valuable, um, that uh, we hadn't even thought of. So in answer to your question about like, you know, could sales and, and partnering fit underneath the CMO? I mean, absolutely. If it's this uh, product-led growth, then you might really be um, thinking about it first from the perspective of uh, how can you have this amazing out-of-the-box experience for customers where they can discover the product on their own, um, where they might also uh, be able to give features and suggestions of how, where the market is, where the sweet spot is. Right. That feedback loop, I feel like, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe to people. And I feel like I only had this realization halfway through the podcast. We're coming up on like the first formal, actually, we just crossed the first year that, you know, it's had this, um, I saw in Riverside today, that's like, you know, uh, 60 plus hours of recording and, you know, obviously the editing and the combos and the pre-calls was, it's not the same to understand the customer as it is to understand the market, right? So you can say, Hey, we sell to X comp- type of companies and Y vertical, right? And this is the, you know, Z horizontal or persona that we, we sell to and we serve and like we're solving this pain point that's still not the same as having a perspective on the market. And I couldn't agree with you more. You, you know, the interesting thing is, um, you know, when you're leading a startup, you just want any customers, right? So, you know, you land this customer and then you land the second customer and then land the third customer. And then I'm looking and going, oh my gosh, I got three customers, but they're three different value propositions. They're three different use cases. And I can only build one, the the product team can only build one product. Um, I don't have enough resource to be building three different things. So I think that's where kind of this combination, if I understand your, your comment correctly, is that, yeah, you're, you're, you got to focus on a customer and satisfying those customers, but it's only when you step back a little bit and you look at the broader market customer segmentation, then you can understand, okay, what are we going after here? And I think you have to get pretty, you have to have a pretty good thesis of what that customer segmentation is, go test and validate that, um, and, and then iterate that. So I think that's kind of that combination of, I don't know, bottoms up and top down approach. Yeah. Be able to take the customer's needs and what they're asking for now, but also show them the way and show them what the future looks like based on the market fit. Right. So being able to kind of lead them to water, if you will. Absolutely. Mark, um, you kind of end the book with, um, talking about like, you know, this is, this is a game to win. Um, and, and I love that. Love that. I mean, I'm slightly competitive. Um, don't win many medals at much. Very, um, very competitive. competitive He's very competitive. 
very competitive in that um, the way that, that you end the book is like, look, this is a game you can win. And I, I think of a, a lot of people think about partnering is like, hey, I want to build this partner program or that's been my task. But when it comes to strategic partnering, I really feel like if you're not first, you're last, you know, kind of Talladega night style, like um, you really have to be in that position where you're there to win. And right. if you're not, if you're not going to win, they just don't, you don't have the bandwidth to be like, oh, I have two strategic partners in this space. No, you have to win. And the two major alliances that I've quote unquote won where it's got us to like the next phase, I've actually come into that partnership negotiation and saying, you don't know me, you don't know us, but in one year, I will be your most strategic partner and we're different than everybody else. Now, I did this before reading your book. I just like thought this has to be right. true. And that set us apart immediately from every conversation. Like not everyone was approaching the chief strategy officer or CEO or CMO saying, no, no, no. In one year, I will be number one. And I have a path to show you how. Um, how important do you think that mindset is? Because like, I don't, I hadn't heard that or seen that, but like, you have to be number one, but I've always felt that way. Um, I love how you end the book that way. Maybe some closing comments on like, you know, what it's like to win there and why you need to have that competitive edge or, you know, if, if you can't go in it to be number one, then don't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's that uh, audacity and the boldness to be swinging for the fences and shooting for number one uh, that gets you to the table in the first place. And, um, you know, the other thing I've learned through being part of numerous um, uh, exit M&A events is the unfair spoils go to the first and second player. No one can even barely remember the third or fourth or fifth player. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that audacity and the boldness um, that, you know, is important. I mean, you put yourself in, in the shoes of the uh, chief product officer or the VP of product management at the big elephant company. W what's going to capture their interest? You know, someone is saying kind of a boring story of I can do this me too thing or someone who goes in there and says, look, I've got a really big idea here that can really transform things. It's that big idea that's going to generate the excitement and enthusiasm um, that's going to carry you through. Pe people want to deal and associate with winners. So absolutely. Um, I think swinging for the fences is, is really important. That's what energizes the conversation. Um, it, it's what differentiates you from, from your competition. That's, I mean, that it's in our title, partner up, right? <laughs> so, you know, partnering up, it doesn't mean that we're... Uh... Partner up, partner big. <laughs> right, exactly. Partner to win. Um, that's, uh, th that, that'll be the methodology that we developed that uh, I'm always talking about in terms of maturity models. But um, Mark, uh, people can find you at CEO Quest on LinkedIn, Twitter. Tell us, tell the folks where they can find you because um, you're continually putting out more um, good content and thoughts on, on this space. Uh, love the experience that you've had and kind of sharing with us today. Where can the folks find you? Yeah, they can find me at uh, CEOQuest.com. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn um, and uh, the LinkedIn group Partner Strategy Network, and and they can check out uh, the podcast. And uh, you know, welcome welcome people to take a look at the book, The Art of Strategic Partnering: Dancing with Elephants, How to Partner with Industry Titans Without Getting Crushed. <laughs> and that's available on Amazon. So, like uh, for those of that's you, on Amazon, yeah. here's my shameless plug for all of you that are um, listening yeah. on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. You can also check us out on YouTube. Uh, partnerappodcast.com. You'll see the videos. You can go subscribe there and uh, get to see that we were actually holding the book. I actually ordered this from Amazon. You can too. Um, so um, uh, don't forget, if you love uh, the stuff that we're bringing to you, because Michelle and I are you know, doing this uh, to learn and be curious uh, learning machines ourselves, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe on YouTube. 
Michelle, it's five stars only, right? Five stars. I won't accept anything less. So do it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Uh, can't wait to uh, continue the conversation with you. I feel like uh, I'm going to come geek out with you on your podcast uh, too. And um, uh, we'll be tuning in and uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on the pod. That'd be great. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Michelle. All right. All right, partner. I'll see you all next time.